Andrea Moll is a professor of political science at Chapman University in Orange, California, and he is also a keen martial arts studies scholar, and I'm talking to him now. Andrea, how are you doing? Pretty good, mate. How are you doing? I'm, I'm all right, yeah. I'm wearing my Chapman University t-shirt. I see. I got mine too. Look, <laughs> yeah, best mate. buddies here now. This is nicer than mine. I'll have to come back and buy a new one. Oh, this was specially done for our institute, but I can get you one. I fetch <laughs> you one. No worries. <laughs> if you don't oh. mind having the word economics on a t-shirt, I know that can be embarrassing oh. for some people. <laughs> Okay, uh, not my <laughs> suit, but so yeah, so economics, so you're a political scientist, you uh, work in the realm of numbers and statistics and, and, and yes. data, but you also want to combine that, or you often do combine that with, with your research in and around martial arts. How does that fit together? Well, I mean, uh, I, I think it's important, I mean, more, more in general, from, from, from a research perspective, I think we're, we're I mean, we're getting to concern about this distinction between qualitative and quantitative, whatever you want to call it, and numbers versus other sort of research. I think that's preposterous. I mean, I, I think, I mean, of course, each one of us will have their, 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 their strongest uh, suit on, uh, uh, on research, but I, I think we should be able to, you know, jump from one method to another or combine results, combine information. I think, I think qualitative is absolutely important. Even if, even if I teach statistics and I, I do most of my work with numbers and, and, and equations and formulas, I think all those things without, without the background, without the history, and without, without the cultural studies, without uh, the qualitative interviewing, it's, it's, it's simple nothing. And, and especially in the martial arts, I think. Mm. So I think you combine I, I know that you have lots of different research interests and lots of different research projects on the go. So I guess, I mean, how, where did it start? When was the first time you decided you wanted to do this um, academically? You wanted to, to do it as a research project? Tell us about your first mm -hmm. connection with the, the academics. So it was my academically suicidal move after my PhD, I think. So I mean, my, my, all my career was pretty boring and, and, and normal after my PhD. And then I got interested in, in Japanese new religion when I was, when I was doing my PhD. So my, my thesis was actually about how some of these movements will, will spread in Europe in, in a completely different you know, socioeconomic and cultural context. And, and so I had a chance to go to Japan and, you know, attend a few conferences. And here I, I met, uh, it, was, it was an early morning in a conference in Sicily. I remember because I got hurt the night before. I walk into the, into the, the restaurant to get my breakfast and there was only two people, me and a Japanese researcher. And we start talking and he said, well, um, I work for a for a research center in in Nagoya that that deals with uh, with religion and culture and lots of other things. And if you're looking for something else, just apply. And and so I apply for a JSPS, the Japanese Society for Promotion of Science Fellowship. I got it unexpectedly, and uh, more than ever because my research idea was to investigate the spirituality within uh, Japanese martial arts. But not really the, you know, how spiritual they are and, and blah, blah, blah. But mostly how the spirituality in martial arts is constructed by uh, European and American practitioners. 
and and also sold by some of the, the some of the people that exported these arts in Europe in 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 the first years, like seventies, around the seventies, or even before during World War Two. Mm-hmm. So I got accepted, and I spent two years working on this. Uh, then when I when I came back um, initially to Europe and then to the United States, they told me mm, that's not really something that we do. And at that time, I didn't know you, man. I didn't know what you were going to do in Europe. Probably if I knew that, my, my life would change completely. I would apply for the UK or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, I got, I got a, another scholarship in, in Texas, Baylor University. And I was free enough to keep doing my, you know, my side work on, on martial arts. And, and, you know, coming here to Chapman, mm-hmm. I managed to convince some of my senior faculty to to you know, I, I told them, like, I'm still going to do, you know, international relations and religion and, and conflict and, and all the things that, that are important. Yeah. If you let me do this, too. And they say, well, okay, I mean, it's your time if you can manage both. And, you know, that's how I came back into, into this. And, uh, you know, around the time that you were looking for, uh, you know, for an option for bringing the conference outside the, the UK and outside Europe. And, yeah. you know, we all know how that goes, right? Yeah, uh, and, then, and then you um, you said, why don't we have a conference in Chapman? And it sounded really interesting and exciting. And But you, you've you, people in North America seem to have struggled to... Um, kind of come out from the shadows when it comes to martial arts studies, right? But, yeah, it's it's um, literally it's literally a coming out experience. It's, it's yeah, just, it's, it's a go strange. out and say you you know I'm doing this. Yeah, and people, I mean, is it the case that the American university is so professionalized or so siloed, or, or I mean, what is it that makes people reluctant to hide, reluctant to kind of show their interests in martial arts as an academic field? It is extremely silent, uh, and I think you know most people, including me, had this idea that that the U.S. will just foster innovation and and be very receptive on on new things. But it's it's really not the case, at least in my neck of the hood. It's it's in in the academia. From my experience, we have these disciplinary silos, and so if you're doing political science, uh, you don't do sociology. Okay, you don't do cultural studies. You unless you find yourself into one of those interdisciplinary areas which are also structured in, 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 the, in the academic discourse here, um, you really have a few options. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and even more so within the discipline, you got to pick one team. And it's, it's excruciating. Anytime you want to do something that is different, that is, that is innovative mm-hmm. or expanding into an area, uh, most of the time that you spend is trying to rationalize to your own academic community why you're doing that. Even with my current book project, I had to kind of, you know, prove my department. And, and I know that this is recorded, but it, it's not, I'm, I'm not offending anybody. But I have to prove my department and they, because of my own interest that I was doing something that was anchored to classical political science. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that hard because, you know, the nature of my project. But uh, I only have, I have a very short leash and I only have few options. I don't enjoy the same freedom or liberty that it, you might you might have in, in, in Europe. And especially in the martial arts study, we're, we're really, you know, backtracked here. We're really behind. Is that, because, is that because of 
of funding so you need to justify your time and it needs to be paid for or is it because you need to apply for grants and there are no grants that would welcome martial arts research i mean what's the or is it because in america you have that tenure system where you're in a really precarious situation so you have to toe the line and you have to jump through the hoops until you get that that kind of holy grail of of of, of tenure yeah uh, it's it's both <laughs> you got you got you touch both nerves uh the reward system within tenure is the reward and punishment system within tenure is so strict it's 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 really a narrow bridge mm-hmm. uh, and you have to jump and, and it's like a you know you have to jump you have to do what do you have to do to get to there? And then when you're off, you can do literally whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's also that component. And the grant component is also there because, of course, and the two are linked because, mm-hmm. of course, in the tenure, they expect you to bring, especially in research university, to bring mm-hmm. some grant in. And there's not a lot of grants that will be open to martial arts studies. Again, unless you tie it up into, into some of those teams that they, um, that they work on. So if you apply for Templeton Foundation, they have these big things like consciousness or, or, or change in, 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 in religion or, or conflict or, or terrorism. So it's, it's all very compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. So already written for you um, that most of the time when you write a grant application, what you're trying to do is to check all the boxes they want you to check. Mm-hmm. And there's always not a box for martial arts, right. even though I mean, at least politically, this is really important. At least yeah. you know, from my perspective. So I, I think I can understand because um, I think I can understand something of how you've justified your current project because your current project is a book on Krav Maga and uh, Israeli national and cultural identity. So I guess I can see how you could persuade people of the cultural politics or or the ideologies at play around that. Would that be right? Yeah, no, exactly. I was was saying before, that wasn't a really hard sell. Uh, It was really easy for me to to convince my colleagues that this is a book about the formation of Israeli identity and nationalism and and also the identity of the Jewish community in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. And what I'm looking specifically is the role that was played by Krav Maga. And uh, uh, which is to me is a very important role, and it's 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 also it's not unique because you can see the same dynamics and discourse, you know, coming out in 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 China at different times, and and you know, of course, Ben Jenkins will be the expert here, or or in Japan during the Meiji Restoration and the invention of kendo, um, sambo with Russia. So there's plenty of examples, you know, of. of mm-hmm you know, actual martial arts, like tradition already existent, or martial art tradition that were reinvented, or martial arts tradition that were resurrected. Uh, you know, look at Mexico and, you know, the formation of Mexican identity, this resurrection of reinvention of, completely invention of martial art tradition, allegedly gaining, you know, dating back from the Mayan or Incan empire. Um, so you have all these examples. It, it wasn't hard for me to say, okay, this has happened before, and I think that looking at the construction of the Jewish state, it's it's even more important because we, we can literally observe that process uh, coming out of the of the 30s and the 40s and 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 so on, 
And up now, we can tie it up, which I did, to the securitization issue and say, how, how does this idea that we always have to be safe, that we always have to be defended, and we always have to, you know, to be proactive and learn things that will allow us to, or, or create things that will allow us to be safe, mm-hmm. uh, is, is tied up to, to Krav Maga, even outside the Jewish community. Uh, so one yeah, thing that I was going to ask about that. I mean, we can we can talk about the history and the myths and the and the ideologies uh, around Krav Maga with specific reference to to different forms of Jewish identity. But what about kind of your average guy on on the old girl and she's and she wants some self defense and she find, and she heard about Krav Maga and we're in maybe we're in Paris or New York or where somewhere is that student going to be impacted or affected by a kind of uh, Israeli cultural nationalism or a Jewish nationalism, or is that, is that not how it works? I, know, I believe so. I mean, and, and, and again, you, you, you really are on point when you said that we can talk about how that plays out with the Jewish identity. And that's, that's one conversation that we can have. It is really interesting. The other conversation that we can have and we should have is that how the Israeli identity which is different from the Jewish identity. How is the Israeli identity? And most importantly, the, the perception of certain tenets of Israeli identity plays out with practitioners that have no interest. They're not Jewish. Mm-hmm. And maybe they have no interest whatsoever in, in Judaism as a religion or as a culture. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one, one other thing that is always thrown around when we talk about um, uh, Japanese martial arts or Chinese martial arts, people get interested in the culture right? Or get interested in martial arts because they're interested or fascinated by the culture. So when I was studying my thing in, in, in Nagoya, one, one of the pathway to that is like, I'm reading manga. I was exposed to manga and Japanese cartoon when I was a kid and I got obsessed by Japanese culture. And, and then, oh, here's the martial arts. I want to do it. Okay. I want to learn how to swing a sword. I want to learn how to throw people with judo. Uh, with, with, with Krav Maga, we don't really have that. Okay. People might have heard about Judaism, but for sure they have heard about Israeli and Israel. And there's this image of Israel being the master of security. Yeah. Right. And uh, so when you when you when you want to ring up your your house and you know or your your place of work, you who you're gonna call? Like Ghostbusters reference here. Who you gonna call? You're gonna call the Israeli security company, right? Because that guy served in the Golani which is like, okay, everybody pretty much serving the Golani. It's like a mandatory, not the Golani specifically, but everybody has done uh, military service in, in Israel. But no, this is like, oh, he's a former Israeli uh, soldier. Mm. Oh, well, I think he's serving the Mossad. Yeah. Mm. Okay, yeah. but you know, that's the, the myth, you know, the mythology of martial arts with Krav Maga is also tied to this idea that uh, if you want to be safe, you got to talk to the Israelis. So, so do we think for people who are maybe interested in the status and work of, of martial arts um, in a more general sense or with specific reference to say, to, not to Krav Maga, but maybe any other kind of martial art, the kind of martial art that seems trivial in a setting like, it's the, like maybe you send your kids there or whatever. But if we look at Krav Maga and its relation to, to uh, the Israeli state and maybe, maybe a sense of Jewish identity and also the securitization of the self, the responsibilization to like, because it's the martial art that makes you go, well, what about the windows? What about the exits? What, yep. about, not, what can you hear? It's not just about like counting to 10 in Japanese and doing this. Yeah. It, is there something that we can take from your studies of Krav Maga in this really 
really intense kind of, of realm of security and, and, and conflict and, and cast light on other martial practices. Like maybe, you know, you, I know you, you've done Aikido and Judo and things like that. Does it teach you anything about those arts? Well? I think at times it can teach you about how those arts were perceived in the past. And uh, since you mentioned Aikido, of, of course, we go back to the 80s and the 90s and those horrible movies with Steven Seagal. There was this idea, of course, that uh, you should learn Aikido because look at that guy in TV, what he's doing. Okay, This mediatized idea of how to protect yourself was really strong. And you go back to karate with, with Chuck Norris or even Kung Fu with you know the famous TV shows. So at times you can use this to sort of kind of cast some light onto other martial arts were perceived. Now, now it, I think it's, it's hard to do that. Um, so to, it's not portable to the realm of traditional martial arts because nowadays we look at traditional martial arts in a very different ways. And so it's all started with emphasis on their philosophical and pro-social behavior um, pedagogy, but it also tied in with a whole conversation about effectiveness and so i'm talking about the mma and then when mma ufc came around and bjj came around and say like these arts are really not what you should be looking at to protect yourself it's it's about other things those other things are wonderful mm -hmm. but i don't think anybody that takes self-defense seriously now will look at aikido or or you know most strip karate or uh, or taekwondo mm -hmm. they look at those legitimately for other reasons mm -hmm. uh, but for sure we can look at mma mm -hmm. sort of applying the same um the same lens mm -hmm. that you apply um at, uh, that you, you get from, from studying Krav Maga. Now, MMA is all sport too. There's a different component. It doesn't really overlap completely with this idea of self-defense and security. So there are, of course, other systems we can look at. But there is one side of that that is you know, considered very effective. And, and, and the fact that it's you know, MMA and BJJ or talk to police forces and military forces that also feed into that, um, into that, uh, that idea. But I think that with, Mar with MMA, it's mostly the gladiatorial component mm -hmm. that fascinates people rather than the, um, that what you say, like the, 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 the securitization of the self. And, yeah. and I, I don't think I might be wrong, but I don't think in, in, in any martial arts, mixed martial art class, they'll, you know, they'll teach you, um, you know, how many doors <laughs> you have in the dojo. Where's the open window? Am I wearing a tie or not a tie? You know, close your eyes and tell me something about the Claire. Uh, so I think those things are, are pertains to the, the self-defense realm. And especially in these days in America, but in Europe too, to Krav Maga. Um, it's kind of, I mean, it wears the crown, doesn't it, of um, of of encompassing all areas. In a sense, there was there's a, there's a the older ideology of of the kind you know the kind of ideology that came through the kung fu television series where you're meant to be pacifist but philosophical and very kind of zen and very. And, and that if you practiced Kung Fu or Tai Chi or something, therefore, as a person, you would be the, the philosophical, you know, kind of wandering Taoist. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. um, but, but nowadays, I mean, you might go down to your Taekwondo class and you kick around for a few hours or you might do a Judo or something. And there's not the imperative to have the spatial awareness, the situational awareness, the, the street smarts that you need. Um, that right. 
Thou will also teach. I guess to be Krav Maga, there must be a discourse around Krav Maga practitioners that you must also include situational, complex scenario training as well as the MMA training of, of use all of your body as a weapon. Right. right. Yeah. And there, there's also political discourse. And, you know, I'm really happy you brought that up because, you know, there's, of course, the individual social component and the way the training is designed. But look at the history of the countries that produce this. So when, when you know, judo or, or aikido, uh, they're developed in, in a modern sense in, in a time where Japan was, was I'm not talking about the Meiji Restoration here, but talking about World War II. So after World War II, what was the idea? Okay, we're a peaceful nation. We're projecting soft power out we're projecting cultural power we sort of lead by example whether they we are or not in our you know in our secret room that peaceful we are projecting that kind of image same thing with China. We have this leaping giant, right? It's a, okay. I control by soft power. I don't. I don't have to crush you with my army or anything. I don't have to defend from anybody because I'm fairly safe in in the war system. Um, if you look at Israel, this is a completely different game. Uh, and and you know it, this is independent of which you which way you side within within this whole messy thing that is the Palestinian Israeli conflict, yeah. but the idea of Israel is that we're few, we're weak, nobody really likes us. We got to defend ourselves. We don't live in a healthy neighborhood here. We live in a very rough uh, territory. We're taking whatever we can out of that, we're carving our nation. So we have to be aware of everything, assuming that everybody else is stronger than us. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is the idea behind the, you know, behind Krav Maga. And especially in, in, let's say, in the more Israeli uh, way of teaching it, mm -hmm. this is very emphasized. Even the, the, the starting out of a weak position, Mm -hmm. And being the weakest in the room is very emphasized. I mean, America is a little different. We, we, you know, Dan Levine, we brought Krav Maga in literally pretty much one of the people that brought Krav Maga in the 90s in, uh, in California and then the United States. Guy is a massive guy experiencing mm -hmm. karate. So the Krav Maga in the United States is more physical. It is more aligned to the, you know, the, the, the foreign policy or, or the way, the, the posture of the United States. Mm -hmm. But Israeli Krav Maga itself, it's, it's very aligned with the, with the posture of the state of Israel, but Jewish okay. state. I have, I have, there's two questions that I want to ask. One is about your research methods like archives and approaches. But the other one is, I mean, Krav Maga is world famous. Uh, is there a, a, an equivalent like Palestinian martial art or, or, is, or does it just not, you know, if, if, if Israel, Palestine and Krav Maga, what, what's on the other, is there an, a, a symmetrical kind of opposite to it? Or is there a, is it just a different universe, like discursive? No. No, I, I don't think, I mean, to my knowledge, okay, and, and you know, if everybody has, a, has a, a, an insight of a, of a Palestinian martial art, please, 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 please let me know. That will be super interesting to look at, you know, exactly what you say to put it into, into just a position with, with the Israeli experience. Um, but I, I don't think there is. And, you know, as a matter of fact, there's a, there's a lot of so-called enemies of Israel, so like, you know, sworn enemy of the Jewish state uh, that are using Krav Maga. Yes. Um, it was the was the official training art or training discipline in the ISIS or ISIL uh, uh, forces. Okay. Um, of course, the whole the Jewish dimensions and Israeli dimensions are sort of like 
epurated in a way, they're pushed away. Mm -hmm. And it, the only thing that is kept is the close combat, which is, by the way, is what Krav Maga means. It's a quarter combat. It's, it's mm -hmm. not a, it's not a, any exoteric uh, biblical uh, label. It's like fighting. <laughs> close quarter hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat yeah. um, so I think it, once you got once you get rid of the whole the Hebrew um, persona and the myth and the mythologies behind it that is very common in, in, in commercial Krav Maga or Israeli Krav Maga then then you can just use it you don't you don't need to create something that is your own thing so the other question then so I mean what you're writing this book and you've been researching it for a while now and yeah. What are your sources? Are you reading kind of old uh, Israeli archives, or are you reading uh, English language archives? Or you know, yeah, no, I'm I'm a mixed method. Uh, so uh, I also have a quantitative component to that. I had a little survey online that I that I, that I gave to um, to practitioners, and you know, mostly interested in Krav Maga as a cultural experience. And then as you were saying, I'm looking into history books and old IDF documents. And the IDF is the Israeli Defense Forces to see how that, um, that, that Krav Maga was, was created. Mm -hmm. You know, besides the mythology of Emil Lichtenfeld's creating it by his own genius and, uh, and, and then give it a, as a gift to, to the world. So what do um, you have to say about that particular myth? I mean, what, what, how does it, when does it born and, and, and who pushes that myth and, uh, and what would you prefer to see pushed? Uh, so it's, again, it's really interesting because we, we find, we find the same dynamics in, in, in most martial arts, right? Uh, and, you, you're the expert here. You wrote a book about these things. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, the founder, okay, Krav Maga needed a founder as, as, as any other martial art, especially because it was sort of like commercialized in those years in which everybody expected Mr. Miyagi uh, to, their, to their martial arts. We needed to find a founder. And so this guy, Emil Lichtenfeld, and I'm not downplaying his role in, in the development of Krav Maga, is the, the, the person that is... Uh, that was taught and is still thought about the uh, as the inventor mm -hmm. of Krav Maga, and he, um, according to the, the, the mythical history, um, he is a Jew in Europe uh, in the 30s. is 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 a very physically gifted person. Uh, he practiced wrestling and boxing, and and also a little bit of judo. He competed in the Maccabi games uh, a few times, and 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 during during the Nazi uh, the Nazi occupation and, and expansion in in Europe, he creates in his own town. He creates a let's say a sort of a vigilante groups to protect the Jewish community from the incursions of, uh, you know, Nazi supporters. Mm -hmm. And, and before things get really bad in Europe, he decided to emig to emigrate in, um, in what is soon to be Israel. Mm -hmm. And there he joined the Haganah, which is the precursor to the IDF. It's the Jewish militia mm -hmm. in the area. And he started teaching that, uh, his method of self-defense to, to other people in the Haganah. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the official history. And then after the, the, the formation of the state of Israel, what happened? The IDF is created and he's offered a job, according to the myth, as the chief instructor of self-defense and hand-to-hand -hand combat system mm -hmm. uh, to the IDF. And he develops his method. It changes quite a bit. He has students. Some students go. Some students stay. Then after he retires from the IDF, he creates an association to teach Krav Maga in Israel. So we're talking about like the you know 70s 80s that period of time and then in the 90s it goes global 
and um, I think the Ministry of, of Sport and, and Culture, they invited people from all over the world, from Jewish communities, sponsored by Jewish philanthropists and communities around to expose them to this new Jewish way of, uh, of defense. And that's kind of how it starts. Uh, with that, that part is true. So that's kind of how it starts. Um, but what is not completely true, according to official documents and people in 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 the uh, let's say in in, in the, the environment of Krav Maga, high top high instructors, and I'm not talking about just small potatoes here, that it, it it's not really true that he invented anything. He brought something that he found. He kind of mixed things and um, and he thought to 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 the military his own methods. But Jewish in the Haganah, they ha already have. From the past, from the British occupation, the Ottoman occupation, they 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 had some you know ways to defend themselves, and the IDF took everything, uh, and they they started to rationalize uh, that. Imi was the right person at the right time uh, to to make that happen in a more formal way, mm -hmm. and it is credited for that, mm -hmm. uh, and it should be credited for that. Uh, what it shouldn't be assumed as the truth is as is any martial arts is that he invented something uh hey he is the only one who came up with the idea the idea i mean we, we did weshiba morihei invented aikido uh i'm not sure he invented anything he he he, he, he learned aitori jujitsu he put stuff that he found interesting into that and he started his school he called it aikido that's that's mm -hmm. fine he didn't invent it anything but however what happens is that in the practitioners they are in the need of finding this this messianic, <laughs> it's a messianic uh, figure um, to their to their discipline is the one who who gave birth to to the discipline. Yeah. So. So. Uh, so. Um. I mean, what one thing that we talked a lot about before um, COVID nineteen caused our countries to go into lockdown and our, our worlds to turn upside down and different ways was we we were working on, on we were thinking about developing a project about self-defense discourses i mean yes and you were you, you'd already done some fascinating research on on different kind of again vigilante groups in different communities mm -hmm. did that is that something that went on pause for you because of the lockdown and you changed your attention to, to the pandemic or is it something that you've you've mixed into the to the krav maga book well, I mixed it in uh, in the Krav Maga book. I, I mean, I, I haven't forgotten about that, and I'm still up to to do that work when when we both have time. I think it's still still really interesting. Um, I I use that in the book quite quite a lot. You know, this this idea uh, of securitizations and this this new attention, new discovered attention to uh, to self defense, which is you know, let me open like a little. You know, like sideways trajectories here. Uh, it's it's bizarre because if you look at the numbers, we are getting more and more safe in our cities. So uh, you know, the, the look at the crime numbers in the U.S. And of course, somebody would come up and say, "Well, but there's a problem with those stats because some there's a high level of unreported uh, assaults." So yeah, that's that's accounted for. Uh, and and but we see uh, a you know, a trend going down. So our cities are becoming more and more secure, or at least there are areas that are becoming less secure by the day, but for the most part, majority of cities, a majority of our environment is becoming more secure from that perspective. But yet you see this increasingly higher attention to, uh, to self-defense. So that went into the book. 
uh, and and also went into the the, the, the pandemic studies. Yes, uh, I have the attention span of a three years old <laughs> sometimes when it comes to uh, when it comes to research, and I get fascinated by the new things. And um, talking, I think we were talking together, and I was also talking to Ben, to which I co-authored an article on COVID nineteen spread in uh, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started thinking about well, what is, what is martial art doing. Yeah. What's what's happening to our classes and what is going to happen, you know, the more we get into our feet deep into into the pandemic and, and what's going to happen after, mm-hmm. you know, assuming that we're getting a uh, we're getting a vaccine, assuming that we are uh, we're getting out of the acute phase of the pandemic. What's going to happen mm-hmm. to um, to our disciplines? And, and, and that's sort of, sort of something that I'm still discussing with Ben. Um, yeah. So what, what, are your, what are your feelings about the, the future of, of martial arts practice, kind of inter- maybe internationally over the next couple of years? Let's assume that maybe we don't get a vaccine mm. immediately. I mean, what, or, or even if, I don't know, even if we do, it's still, I, I, there's shockwaves that are going to ripple through things for a while. I mean, even in the best scenarios, what, what do you think is likely to happen to, the, to this world? Well, it's 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 hard to tell. What what Ben and I are seeing are are are, are different tendencies, and and that's why we want to design a, sort of like a social experiment, or we want to we want to design a research and collect data before it's too late, because on the one hand we're seeing a boom of some martial art classes. They discover the online instruction, and which was 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 a taboo. You know, if you, if you go back and look at two years ago. Okay, and you you, you 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 go on a Facebook page or in a group and say, "Oh, I want to open a virtual dojo. I want to learn a martial art from the video." Mm-hmm. People will just look at you like, "Who is this idiot?" Yeah, you know, you can't learn martial arts from a book. Yeah. Another big myth, a lot, you know, big myth of us, right? Or from a video, it's impossible. You need one-to-one learning. Even mass-produced martial arts, such as like Koryu, uh, so, sorry, the Gendai Budo in Japan, this is totally useless. You have to have this personal physical relationship with. Mm-hmm. And now everybody is going online. Why? Because, you know, martial arts are also a business and, and they have to survive. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, we're discovering that. And, and, and you know, that opens up new avenues. You know, mm-hmm. people that can go to training, they can still log online, even if there's training, mm-hmm. you know, going on. Or people from the, out, you know, the other side of your state that doesn't have a karate dojo in, in their city, they yeah. can still have some karate experience. They can still learn something. And, and the narrative is changing. The discourse is changing. And you see people that says, you can learn martial arts. They were saying, well, you, you kind of can learn martial arts. Dude. Kinda <laughs> Just I found, I found a mythical, you know, I discovered this ancient method of online training that was hidden in the cave in China. And, and there's a temple that teach virtually since 2000 years ago, I learned from them. Uh, so you have that. I'm not trying to make fun, but that's, that's sort of what's happening, right? So you got these people that are discovering a new way of teaching. And that's amazing. And, you know, if you think about it in terms of survival of some martial arts, or, you know, even developing on, on of new discipline that before that were limited to a village or a city or a particular country. Mm. Uh, if you wanted to learn whip, uh, or 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 stick fighting from Africa. You, you can't go there. You don't have a place to, to learn that. But now maybe with a little bit of technology, you can mm. sort of start learning it. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a rediscovery to that. There's great opportunity. On the other side, however, uh, this is going to the detriment of uh, of a lot of martial arts. They cannot efficiently teach online. Yeah, I, I'm I'm thinking BJJ. I'm thinking judo. My my son was in judo before the pandemic. I uh, was in judo too. I was teaching to the kids. So it was uh, you know we have a little dojo going on. You know all friends. And, and then the pandemic stroke and he's not being in a class ever since. Yeah. He, can't, he can't play with a dummy. He can't do all those things. It, some martial arts that need physical contacts more than others may be in very deep water after, right. after this, this pandemic. Yeah, I found that uh, with my, in my own narrative over the last six months, you know, I thought, okay, okay. There's no training for a while, a little while. <laughs> so I thought, okay, what do I need for, for BJJ? I need strength and I need flexibility. So I was in the yoga and I bought and I got some more weights and uh, some squat racks. And, and then I bought two, two dummies, not one, but two dummies. And then after a little while of that, I was like, yeah, but there's no end in sight. And so it might it stopped being yoga and and um, weight training for BJJ, and it just became weight training and yoga because they're good, and and now it's like I don't even think about it. It seems like an impossible dream at the moment that I would mm-hmm. that I would go back. And, and at the moment as well, and this is the thing, I were, I, I've got a nice routine now. Do I? It's like it's like Ben Judkins wrote. It's like people are realizing that they just need a kettlebell and a yoga mat and and maybe an internet connection, and you've got all you need. Do yep. you need to go sparring? Do I need it? Why do I need it? I can get I can get highs using the the Wim Hof method of breathing. I can I can get my adrenaline hits from from really intense punch bag workouts or something. Do I still need Do I still need martial arts? So my you know I've been. Th- through all sorts of existential crises, I think I do still need martial arts, but like that's because I'm an addict, right? I'm an addict. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, again, you're, you're striking the, 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 the most central chord here. Um, with the online experience, at least for now, I mean, there might be some, some equivalent to that. We're losing all the socialization component or the social component, which, you know, that's admitted. Sometimes it borderline cultish, but mm-hmm. that's something we need, we grow into. And the moment you, you kind of unplug that, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to plug it back. Mm-hmm. Because you fill your life with other things, and that's you know that's also true for you know let's let's look around and say okay let's not talk about martial arts let's talk about physical activities. Yeah. You know, twenty four hours gym, golden gym, plus five or six more of these big corporation here in the U.S. just file for bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and because people are not going back. Yeah. Because they say oh. I was spending 50 bucks a, a month yeah. to go to a gym and I had to drive there and to pay gas there to stay on a bike and, and lift some weights. Yeah. I can buy those weights. Yeah. You know, you have a backyard or you have a spare room you, you yeah. or a garage, you fill it up with, you know, weights and, you know, let's say like kettlebells and very basic things. And there are people online that are profiting on that and say, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to go back to gym because I'm going to tell you what you need yeah. to do that. And maybe I'll sell you some videos in, yeah. in the meantime. And, and that's something that, that it's sort of happening in some martial arts too. Yeah, And I think, I think there's certain things that will 
be able to thrive like so for instance i've gone back i mean i've spent many years punching and kicking things in different styles and and i've only recently got into grappling and wrestling styles and i can't do them but I, i'm i'm i just bought a new punch bag yeah. so i can so i'm but i'm i'm grudgingly going back to pugilism like and, and I'm getting I'm getting a lot from it physically and, and, and mentally and emotionally. But so some you know that could go online. You can look online and someone can teach you jab cross hook uppercut. You know you can you can footwork timing. And yeah. You have this equipment. So some some things will profit from non-contact. Even things that are very physical like boxing and all the boxer size and tie bow and all these things. There'll be like a resurgence of tie bow. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I I completely agree with you. And and you you see it. You see it happening. And when I was mentioned before, those classes that are actually booming. Those are mostly striking classes. Um, and I see with my son. My son, you know, I'm a martial art nerd, and so I'm you know being a good parent. I impose my hobbies to my son. Uh, that's good parenting, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, but he likes it. So he's into karate, and 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 I brought it there. And for the whole you know, first part of the pandemic when Dojo couldn't be open again, a place couldn't be open again, he would do it online. Mm-hmm. And then I was talking to his instructor when I brought it back because he really likes the social component. They say, like, there's a lot of parents that don't want to come back. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they, they don't care. It, for them, is is nirvana. It's, it's pure heaven. They can put their kid into a room yeah. having 45 minutes training they don't have to sit there they don't have to pretend to pay attention uh they don't have to drive them over there yeah. so and and with a lot of striking art they think about somebody that works nine to five and then he wants to go to the gym and maybe gym is like seven to nine yeah. i don't want to go there i don't want to go back home and get ready when i'm there it's my couch or my beer i don't want to go out again but if you have an online option mm-hmm. And I, I don't think this is going away. I think yeah. this is, is going to stay around, at least for some arts that were booming. Grappling arts, wrestlings, on the other hand, they will suffer. I think so. Well, yeah, I, 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 I think so. I mean, the, 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 the BJJ classes have reopened currently in Britain, but there's not much contact. It all has to, any, any rolling, any actual fighting or, or sparring has to be really, really either in a bubble or, or secretly, um, and mm-hmm. I'm not prepared to do that. But anyway, um, I mean, so what's what's next on your agenda? What's what's the next project? When is the Krav Maga book out? And and what's hopefully next? soon enough. <laughs> I don't want to throw dates around, also because the whole pipeline is jacked by by the COVID nineteen. So everything everything's got has got you know roadblocks and stopped at some point. Uh, you know, even collecting data was harder for me because of the because of the lockdown, especially in Israel. People were in lockdown. They are in lockdown again now. So things are getting a little bit um, complicated. Mm-hmm. So this is a big project. And after that, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, I got into this COVID-19, so the survival of martial arts. Uh, but what I would like to do is to continue exploring the political aspects of, of, of martial arts. Uh, with Ben, we're actually working about, uh, we're working on a book proposal for a um, the, the collection of essays coming mostly from the, 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 the Chapman University conference, the martial art conference, that specifically talk about politics and, and martial arts, like from social justice in capoeira, uh, of course, uh, to, um, to MMA and white supremacists. That is something that I'm really interested to, by the way. Uh, I, I don't think I have the energy now to get into that, 
but uh, I, I think there's a lot to look at into into MMA and, and white supremacists. I think I think that is an interesting thing. And we've I mean, we've had conversations about this. There were presentations at the conference about mm-hmm. yep. different sorts of ethnically organized racisms and, and prejudices around martial arts like MMA and also some around the historical European martial arts, the kind of like mm-hmm. Viking myth or, of Northern European masculinity, right? That, all of this kind of stuff. Very interesting. Yeah, but I mean, if, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's one of the dark side of martial arts, isn't it? And especially those, those martial arts that have a very strong ethnical and national component, uh, th- there's quite a lot of racism going on. And, you know, of course, MMA, because of the tie that, you know, in some way have built between bridges that have been built between uh, some, you know, extremist groups and white supremacist groups and the discipline itself or, you know, HEMA and the way it was hijacked by, by um, let's say, nativist mm. uh, group and anti-European, uh, anti-European Union groups in, in Europe. But, you know, look at J- Japan, for, for example. I mean, I'm, I'm no expert in China, but I would, would assume that some of those dynamics and mechanism happen with those martial arts too. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that it's, you know, and still are probably some some disciplines that are not taught to any foreigners. Mm. And you know, the core you was like, oh, no, we don't really accept. And you know, the, of course, the the well, we can't really understand if you don't really speak Japanese. Mm-hmm. But the underlying thing is that this is our thing. We want to preserve it. It's important to us. We don't want it to be diluted by Westerners. We don't want to have Westerners getting in. And mm-hmm. even when Westerners are in, mm-hmm. there's there's a different track uh for for them and you know historical examples you know people in the in the goju ryu karate were were disavowed if they were teaching to um to to americans mm-hmm. in, in in okinawa american militaries uh of course on the other side a lot a lot of groups prof- profited yeah. on, on teaching on teaching westerners but even there they were keeping them out you know the the, the the every decisions or the higher ranks or higher places in the hierarchy. I mean, even today, the Haikikai, which is the, probably the biggest Aikido organization in the world, there's only a few top rank that are not Japanese. Mm. And and I don't know if they've changed it. A few years ago, there was this rule that if you want to go above, I think, Godan or something, you have to live in Japan. Mm-hmm. So you have to be there. So apparently this is because you need to, you know, to live the culture and you know commit yourself to that, blah, 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 blah. But what it is, is that if you're not Japanese, it's hard for you to get up there. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, this is not the same level of racism that, that you can find in, of course, in, uh, in the hammerheads or, or skinheads group practicing MMA. Uh, of course, it's completely different, but, Discrimination is in the DNA. Uh, let's say more than discrimination. This this idea of like initiations or or progression within within the group, um, it's still something that is in the DNA of, of I would say most disciplines, especially the ones that are used politically. Okay. Well, I'm glad we've got all this recorded because um, I, I I hope that you will follow up on on all of the things that you've just been raising now because I think each and every one of those would be an absolutely compelling 
article or even a short article, a short statement of like, what the hell is going on? All of these different associations in these different contexts. That would be uh, a wonderful book or collection or uh, yeah. issue of the journal or something like that. that would, all of these. <laughs> no, that would, be, that would be interesting. It's like, uh, let's put it this way, however, I, I think I might done something in that uh, in that sense, uh, but that, that's something that will burn a lot of bridges. You know, you know what I mean. A lot of people, especially if you are okay, we have this 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 ambiguity in our field, right? We are scholars, and that's our job. That's you know what we are. But we are also our practitioners, and we are passionate about martial arts. And I think some people might find a little too, let's say, uncomfortable to start writing certain things about their association when yeah. you know. Well, maybe maybe we they, should write each write um, uh, an article about what we do know about and then swap the authorship so that we don't, so <laughs> that's that a good idea that's a good idea that's a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a really good idea honestly because like i i can't i can't i can't write about aikido you know i'm, in, I'm in there but uh you can write about it and I'll, I'll write about tai chi for you uh, you know i, I mean it, these are not heavy things but but i think i think as you were suggesting I work on all these dark sides of martial art mm. But practices and organization is 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 really uh, is really in due time is is overdue, I think. And uh, because what what I see a lot of people are that concern themselves with the dark side of martial arts, they talk about violence, mm -hmm. and and there's a lot to talk about. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not denying, but it seems to be the only focus. Yeah. Of of people interested in in not celebrating martial arts too much and not being you know kind of being looking at some of the side effects or or, or again dark side of it, uh, but not a lot of people thought you know write about so what what are other problems mm -hmm. with martial arts? Well, they they do. We we know that I mean, at least one of the things we want to explore too with with Ben is like well they create communities, mm -hmm. right? You know, the, the, the martial arts discourse create communities, whether that's a local community or, in my case, I'm looking at national communities. Mm -hmm. But that comes with with a price, right? If if I create a national community, it's all good and, and and beautiful for the people who are in the community, mm -hmm. that automatically exclude other people, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so if, automatically if, as well. It produces hierarchies and very precise codes and rules and uh, and and a privileged group and an underprivileged group and. Yeah, it can become quite toxic and, um, uh, and yeah. dark as well. Correctly, I mean, it, it, um, yeah. You've given us the title for the for this podcast episode on the on on Krav Maga and the dark side of martial arts. <laughs> the dark side of martial arts. They're looking very Star Wars ish here. No, but I mean, uh, look what happened. Like politically speaking, and I, I I hope I'm not I'm not touching an open wound here. But you know what happened with you with you guys leaving the EU, right? So this affirmation of the affirmation of the, the the British and English identity, you know, when when you know when at the uh, when when really against and killed the European identity. Mm. Uh, so no, it's yeah. I, I no, I get it. It's exactly well. I'm talking about Brexit and leaving the that's like driving off a cliff. So I, I it's it is a, it is an open wound there. We can't. It's yeah. Don't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of reasons why why it's an open wound, and you know, and and I and I think you 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 know among all 
or people because because of your your knowledge in 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 you know in identity processes and cultural studies you appreciate that it's it's from a from an identity construction perspective mm. it's 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 a dramatic uh has a dramatic impact mm-hmm. oh yes not just in terms of identity but um no but in very real and this takes us back to your 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 core discipline but in a very political and economic sense like hugely consequential for people's lives not just as identities but as 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 economic agents and as 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 living beings um we shall see about right. that right i mean talked, and we've talked for a, a while now i'm sorry i'm we could talk all night but um okay <laughs> but there's one that's there's only one thing that i wanted to add about this and you know just to bring history and context back into the picture for for a second we look back at world war ii when we're talking about martial arts and you know the the role they play into into being toxic to mm-hmm. uh, to to identities or or creating these in groups and out groups dynamics. Look at how with the Japanese, you know, invading Korea and and the Manchukuo. One of the things they started to do was to impose their martial arts, right? Mm-hmm. So teaching kendo and karate to 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 Koreans and uh, and that was was sort of like forcing them into into becoming good Japanese subjects, mm-hmm. uh, not to not to. Um, promote their own their own identity or their own well-being and and the moment the japanese went off they did kept those things they just turn it mm-hmm. against uh, in a sense against the japanese yeah. uh but they turn it into something to create their own identity using those elements so, and that's that's you know taekwondo comes about and kumdo uh, comes about and especially kumdo that has become ever since literally a diplomatic battle between between uh, South Korea and uh, and Japan, who is yeah. going to be the world champion? Yeah, and to the point that they dress differently. <laughs> it's like, okay, your Akama is that, so I'll, I'm going to add a white bar into into mine, so they'll make it different. Oh, you had all the ties. Okay, I'm going to add like Velcro straps to mine. <laughs> uh, I'm going to make my Shinai a little different from yours, just to prove that mine are better, that I'm better than you at your own sport. And so that's. I'll cut it here, as you no, said. No, I know. I go ahead for hours. The conversation about the the kind of fraught semiotic um, and other cultural battles between the the South Koreans and the Japanese in the world of martial arts is just fascinating. And it's amazing. It's, yeah, it's I know. Entirely outside of that, it's like watching a game of tennis, isn't it? It's like. <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's probably a really raw nerve for a lot of people. But I, I do need to um, I do need to call time on this. I'm really sorry. Of course. <laughs> it's no fascinating. And we'll 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 talk again soon, uh, but we'll do another podcast, I guess, when your book comes out. But for sure. now, Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for the conversation. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this.